Scripture passage this morning is Genesis chapter 10, Pew Bible page 14, Genesis chapter 10. Before we read, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, bless the reading and preaching of your word, enlighten us by your Holy Spirit, that we may see the length, the depth, the height of Christ's love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. This is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, the Kittim, and the Rodanim. From these, the maritime people spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. The sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, and Shinar. From that land he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Resen, which is between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Mizraim was the father of the Ludites, Anamites, Lehabites, Naphtahites, Pathrusites, Kasluchites, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarites. Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zimmerites, and Hamathites. Later the Canaanite clans scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon toward Gerar as far as Gaza, and then toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages, and their territories and nations. Sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, or Foxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Meshech. Or Foxad was the father of Shelah, and Shelah the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg, because in his time the earth was divided. His brother was named Joktan. Joktan was the father of Almadad, Shalef, Hazar Mafeth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were sons of Joktan. The region where they lived stretched from Mesha towards Sephar in the eastern hill country. These are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages and their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's sons according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out over the earth after the flood. 
Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. In his commentary on Genesis, Dr. H.C. Leupold includes a section with hints for preaching the passage under consideration. If you turn to see what he says about Genesis 10, you'll read these words. It may very well be questioned whether a man should ever preach on a chapter such as this. It is true that chapters like this in the Bible are often passed over. They can be a bit dry to read. Some people might read it like this. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, skip a few. These are the clans of Noah's sons. But they are important. Otherwise, why would God give them to us? They're important because life has shown us that origins are important. How we trace back through history and connect ourselves to it is important. This is one of those chapters that helps us understand how our world is the way it is today, why we are the way we are today, and how our world and we can be saved from the path that is leading to destruction. Our theme this morning is God's providence brings the promised deliverer. And I've broken up the passage just as the Holy Scriptures have broken it up between the descendants of, the J, uh, of Japheth, the descendants of Ham, and the descendants of Shem. So the Japhethites, the Hamites, and the Semites. So let's begin with that first section that traces the Japhethites. Verse 1 says, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons who themselves had sons after the flood. If you remember, I told you that the book of Genesis is broken up between ten Toledos, or books, and this marks the beginning of a new book. We've passed from the book of Noah, and now we are going on to the book of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in the NIV, when it says, this is the account of, that is the marker for you thematically. A selective genealogy is given to us here that traces the origins of various people groups. Seventy generations are listed here, and it's representative of completion or wholeness. And we understand here that this is a selective genealogy because in some of the names we have listed pronouns, proper names. In other names we have listed for us the names of people groups. So for instance... The sons of Javan. Elisha is a person. Tarshish is a person. But the Kittim and the Rodanim, marked with the Hebrew plural, emphasizes that these are people groups. Continuing on, verses 2 through 5, we're given the descendants of the Japhethites. We're told that Noah's blessing entails the extension of Japheth's territory. Much as what's being told to us here in the table of nations, Genesis chapter 10, is meant to be expressive of Noah's blessing upon Japheth and Shem and his cursing upon Ham, his descendant. So, we're told that he would, Japheth would have an extension of his territory, that he would live under the banner of Shem. And these nations can most likely be traced to what we know today as the Indo-Europeans. Therefore, the blessing of Noah's particular Particularly, uh, the blessing of Noah is particularly fulfilled through the Gentile missions of Paul. 
the grafting end of a branch into the olive tree of Israel. These nations would be brought into the tent of Shem's descendants, Eber and the Hebrew people, through the proclamation of the gospel by the apostle of the Gentiles and the way that we have come to know, most likely, of salvation in Jesus Christ, a first century Jew from the city and town of Nazareth. This is also why many prophecies of the Gentile inclusion occur in the Old Testament. Particularly when you read of the Kittim and the Rodanim, from these the maritime peoples spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with its own language. In verse 5, this phrase, maritime peoples, is translated as the coastland nations. And Isaiah often uses this phrase, the coastland nations, in his prophecies to express how the Gentiles are waiting for the light of messianic salvation. The coastlands wait for his law. The coastlands are waiting for the dawning of the Messiah. Nevertheless, even among Japheth's descendants, we hear of Magog, a nation descending from Japheth, which later becomes associated with end times prophecies in the book of Ezekiel and Revelation, as a rival kingdom and God to the coming kingdom of God. This is the reason why James Montgomery Boyce makes this connection in his commentary. He concludes that it is likely that this family of nations eventually possessed most of the world's territory. Then says, but at what cost? Apart from those Indo-Europeans who remembered their roots and delighted to take refuge in the descendant of Shem, the Messiah, this block of peoples has gained the whole world at the loss of its soul. It will not find its soul save in him who created it originally. Then he lists four great truths that the sons of Japheth should have remembered, should have mastered. The first is that there is one God to which their roots bear record. We need to understand that what's being described for us here in this table of nations is how the people groups spread out all over the world. And what you'll realize is as they spread out all over the world, they became pagan and barbaric. They lost their connection to the one true God, Yahweh. Second truth that should have been mastered by the sons of Japheth, that all the peoples of the earth are one people, connected through a common descendant, Noah, and even beyond that, Adam. Number three, they should have mastered this truth, that truth is one. There's no such thing as my truth or your truth. There is one truth. And fourth, that there is only one salvation. Many of the descendants of Japheth, though, have lost sight of these realities. They've instead exalted themselves as gods. And they rule over and exploit others that they consider to be inferior. Even though they are one blood. In very many ways, humanity expresses this reality. We instead exalt ourselves as gods. We rule over and exploit others that we consider to be inferior. 
even though we are connected as humanity. We seek our own subjective truth and we have lost sight of God's promise of a deliverer or even our need for one. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, mourns over those who, quote, voluntarily become forgetful of the grace and salvation of God, pushing memory of the deluge far into the past, and little remembering by what means or for what end they had been preserved. Japheth was saved through the flood and its descendants, but they have forgotten what purpose they were preserved for. Many alive today are in this category. They've lost their common heritage with humanity in connection to the one and only living God who made them in His image for a purpose. And my encouragement to you is if you are one of those to turn away from your unbelief and believe in God and the Savior He has promised and given to us. Turn to Jesus in whose blood all humanity is reunited. So that's the Japheth, Japhethites. Let's turn now to the Hamites, verse 6 through 20. Verse 6 and 7, we read the sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, so on and so on. Of the Hamites, the most significant descendants, which continue to be a part of redemptive history given to us in the Bible, are those of Cush, Mizraim, and Canaan. Cush is the Bible's name for Ethiopia. In Africa, Mizraim is the Bible's name for Egypt. Canaan, of course, is the ancestor of the various tribal groupings that settled the land given to Israel and were later conquered by them under Joshua. All would in large part be associated as enemies of Israel, particularly Egypt, the Philistines, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, and the Canaanite tribes. In verse 8 through 12, though, marks a thematic break in our passage or genealogy where we're told about one descendant of Cush and given particular details about him, Nimrod. What we have in these verses is a thematic break from the genealogy's pattern. It's meant to draw our attention to the importance of Nimrod. Much like earlier genealogies stopped to tell us about Enoch and how he walked with God and so forth. Nimrod is a descendant of Cush whom we are told is the founder of the first world empire. This is the first place in scripture where the word kingdom occurs. But it's not used of God's kingdom, but rather a rival kingdom of man. We're told of Nimrod that he was a mighty man, a warrior and a mighty hunter before the Lord. This is emphasized. The word mighty is used three times to describe him. And his reputation even created a proverbial saying. This is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. But if you might catch on with common parlance with this word, particularly in later years, Nimrod became a negative connotation, given a negative connotation. Something you called people who you thought were simple or unintelligent. We have to ask ourselves a question then. This phrase on its surface looks to be a positive one. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. 
That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. But a little digging will show that this is actually bad. The empire of Babylon under Nimrod was an affront to God and man. A rejection of God and a ruling over others tyrannically. Historically, the Jews understood Nimrod to be the one who organized the building of the Tower of Babel. And Martin Luther believed that the word hunter was not speaking of animals, but of men. It was through his ability to fight and kill and rule with an iron fist that his kingdom was established. His designation even links him to the evil tyrant spoken of in Genesis 6. When it says, he grew to be a mighty warrior on the earth. And the person who's reading Genesis should be reminded of what Genesis 6 about mighty warriors on the earth. Suggesting that the anti-God spirit of the world is making a comeback. The Nimrod is falling in line with those who had become so evil that God desired to bring a flood upon the earth and destroy all living creatures. And in fact, if you trace Nimrod's descendant to the later Babylonian kingdom and city of Nebuchadnezzar, you will have the clearest biblical illustration of this spirit. We know that Nebuchadnezzar was used by God to bring judgment upon Israel, the kingdom of Judah. But Nebuchadnezzar himself raised himself up above God. If you think of the story of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He has a dream about a statue. The statue is made of various different kinds of metal, materials. And he can't understand this dream. And Daniel, he comes and he interprets this dream for him. And Daniel says, yeah, your, your kingdom is, is, is gold. It's the head. But if you trace these other kingdoms, they're going to come after you. They're going to overtake you. Until finally the Messiah comes and his kingdom, which starts as a stone, turns into a mountain. But have you ever noticed how one of the very next stories we read about Nebuchadnezzar is that he takes that interpretation of Daniel's dream and almost as if to say, nope, that's not how it's going to be. My kingdom is the only kingdom and my kingdom will last forever. He takes a statue and he makes a statue of himself. That's not only gold, the head. Its entirety is gold. And if maybe you think I'm reading too much into Nebuchadnezzar's spirit of lifting him up, lifting himself up above God, we read later in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar looks out upon his beautiful city and the Babylonian empire that he's made. And he says, wow, look what I have done. And God comes to him and he says, you're going to crawl around and you're going to eat grass like a cow because of the pride in your heart. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, as the descendant of Ham, embodies this early Nimrod's kingdom mind, kingdom spirit, that's anti-kingdom of God, anti-God, lifting oneself up as a replacement of God, saying that we're going to make a name for ourselves and we don't need God. 
James Montgomery Boyce notices that even though Noah's curse upon Canaan is that he will be brought low as slaves of his brothers, this curse does not immediately take effect in the providence of God. Instead, it seems that this brother of Cain and Cush and his descendants seek to enslave others. And he says this, I say this may be deliberate, for I can imagine Nimrod to have thought in this manner. He may have said, I don't know about the others, but I regard this matter of the curse of God on Canaan as a major disgrace on my family, one that needs to be erased. Did God really say that my uncle Canaan would be a slave? I'm going to fight that judgment. I'll never be a slave. What's more, I'll be the exact opposite. I'll be so strong that others will become slaves to me. Instead of slave, I'll make them say, here comes Nimrod, the mightiest man on earth. You see, this is the natural man's response to their very own cursed condition, isn't it? That they have fallen in sin apart from God and they're without hope in this world. We shake our fists at the sky and we defy the everlasting God and his curse. And so what do we do? We create arts. We raise an army. We build cities. We establish governments. We do everything we can to make a name for ourselves in defiance of God's decrees. Hey, we even think that we can somehow control an airborne virus. And we do this seeking to secure our own salvation, our own paradise, our own utopia, apart from God. But you see, there's only one way we can escape God's curse. And it's to go where God takes a curse upon himself in Jesus Christ. Boyce says, that is our pattern. To come to Christ where the curse of God against sin is poured out. To be clothed in his righteousness. And then to learn that path of humble service to others within the human family. That is the true and only road to real greatness. See, the world tells you to lift yourself up. The world tells you to make a name for yourself. The world tells you to do something great. And if you have to use other people to get to where you're going, then do it. That shows that you are strong. That shows that you are powerful. That shows that you are in charge of your own destiny. And you don't need anybody. You don't need God. You don't need people. You just need to show that you can do it. You can accomplish it. And whoever you step on, whoever you hurt to accomplish it and to get to where you're going, it's justified. And you know what Jesus Jesus says, die to yourself. Think of others as more important than yourself. What does it matter if someone knows your name? Jesus calls us to be a servant not to be served. To have compassion and kindness. To sacrifice for others. Not to sacrifice others for ourselves.
Lastly, the Semites. Even though Shem, we are told in verse... Twenty-one is the middle son. The order that we always read of the sons of Noah is always Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And even in this genealogy, we are told first of the descendants of the Japhethites, then the Hamites, and then we end with Shem. He's given priority. He's given importance. Not only does this coincide with the theme of God's gracious reversal of choosing the younger rather than the oldest son, but it presents the sons in their order by importance to the original recipients of Moses' writing. Abraham descended from the Shemite line, as we will later discover in the conclusion of the Shemite genealogy in the second part of chapter 11, following the Tower of Babel. The Hebrews will get their name from their descendant Eber, Despite their importance, though, there is less that we know about the line of Shem, mainly because the focus narrows down to the chosen Abrahamic line. Verse 25 tells us some interesting facts. Another break in the thematic uh, pattern of this genealogy. We're told about Peleg. Special mention is given to one of the sons of Eber, Peleg, whose name is a pun since it means division. And in his time, we are told the earth was divided. The most likely interpretation of this is that chapter 10 is not a chronological passing of time that leads to the incident of the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, but is rather an explanation of how the various people groups came to split up and separate after God confused their languages. Verse 10.5 points to this, same, that their territories by their clans within their nation, each with its own language. Also, we read, these are the sons of Shem by their clans and languages and their territories and nations. Important to note that right at the beginning of chapter 11, we're told at that time everyone shared the same language. So Peleg's father Eber named his son when he witnessed firsthand what God did at Babylon at Babel, confusing the languages. And verse 32 then functions as an inclusio, bookmarks. The beginning and the end of chapter 10 are very similar. Starting and ending the chapter with essentially the same phrase, summarizing what has already been said. And to close out this study of Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, I'd like to read a a Martin Luther quote, one that he said as he reflected on this passage. It's pretty lengthy, but I think it's important that we hear what uh, Luther thought about this, this particular passage. He did not share the same opinion about it that uh, the one commentator said about how we should never preach on this. Luther writes, Whenever I read these names, I think of the wretched state of the human race. Even though we have the most excellent gift of reason, we are nevertheless so overwhelmed by misfortunes that we are ignorant not only of our own origin and the lineal descent of our ancestors, but even of God himself, our creator. Look into the historical account of all nations. If it were not for Moses alone, what would you know about the origin of man?
of this wretched state, that is, of our awful blindness, we are reminded by the passage before us, which gives us instruction about the things that are unknown to the whole world. What do we have about the very best part of the second world besides words, not to mention the first one, which antedated the flood? The Greeks wanted to have the account of their activities preserved, the Romans likewise, but how insignificant this is in comparison with the earlier times concerning which Moses has drawn up a list of names in this passage, not of deeds. Hence, one must consider this chapter of Genesis a mirror in which to discern what we human beings are, namely, creatures so marred by sin that we have no knowledge of our own origin, not even of God himself, our creator, unless the word of God reveals these sparks of divine light to us from afar. Then what is more futile than boasting in one's wisdom, riches, power, and other things that pass away completely? Therefore, we have reason to regard the Holy Bible highly and to consider it a most precious treasure, this very chapter, even though it is considered full of dead words, has in it the thread that is drawn from the first world to the middle and to the end of all things. From Adam, the promise concerning Christ is passed on to Seth, from Seth to Noah, from Noah to Shem, and from Shem to this Eber, from whom the Hebrew nation received its name as the heir for whom the promise about Christ was intended in preference to all other peoples of the whole world. This knowledge the Holy Scriptures revealed to us. Those who are without them live in error, uncertainty, and boundless ungodliness. For they have no knowledge about who they are and whence they came. Boyce, reflecting on this very quotation from Martin Luther, says, Thanks to the Word of God, we have that knowledge in order that we might know not only who we are, from where we have come, but also how far we have fallen and who alone is able to lift us up from our sin and bring us back to paradise. May we turn to Christ and find life in him. May we know that through God's providence, he has brought the promised deliverer. May we know from whence we have come so that we may know how we have been saved and where to we are going. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us untethered in this world, but then you have shown us where we have come from, our connection to history. You've shown us why the world is the way it is today, why we are the way we are today, and how we've been saved from the path we are on that is leading to destruction and how you've saved your very own creation. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.